Hi, this is Star Wars author Delilah S. Dawson, and you're listening to Clashing Sabers Network. Here we go again. We're home. I bypassed the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. Ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Classic Sabers Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I am here with my co-host. He is... that That's your part, Drew. Oh, oh, my bad. Hey, good morning. How are you? <laughs> He's just pretty That's your plain. part now. <laughs> oh, well, always yeah, perfect, perfect on the timing. Hyperbolic explanation. The- the no, man no, no. who needs no it's introduction, fine. so he doesn't get one. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it was like no, an alley oop. I was throwing it up and generic other person talk to. Oh, anyways, all right. Well, you know you've I heard her already. See you, right? <laughs> when you 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 envisioned me doing it though, so. <laughs> This is on you, really, if we're being you honest. You guys are doing great. Uh, we're back to old form, guys. This All right. And awesome. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff people join our Patreon to hear. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the content you come to Clashing Sabers for. And the other reason you come to Clashing Sabers, she is cooler than Baby Yoda wearing Chewie's goggles from Solo, because those things are dope. It's Lindsay. Uh, normally I would be so flattered, but Drew apparently doesn't even need an introduction, and here I am. <laughs> yeah, you're the B-Squad. Yeah. yeah, clearly. <laughs> clearly. So. Wow. Okay. It's weird Just saying. cold in here all of a sudden. Burr. I guess so. All right. <laughs> Sarcasm is a path to the dark side. Uh, Drew. <laughs> okay. Hey, hey uh, Drew, What's what up? have you been Star Warsing lately? Well, I'll tell you. I, there's been. Um, I've got three different things I could actually mention this time, which is weird. Um, I've been kind of digging into the world of the Black Series toys a whole lot more than I had been. Like I've been enjoying kind of collecting them as we go, but now I've started to really try to look at what's coming, what's available, what are the chase figures and whatnot. And let me tell you what, that's a weird underbelly of society is the uh, the the hardcore co- collectible toy market, I suppose. There are some vicious folks out there. It's kind of funny to watch, honestly. Like, if you're a people-watching person, find one of these uh, Facebook groups that has, like, you know, for, that's specific design for buying, selling, and trading these figures. And it is a cutthroat world out there, and it is pretty dang entertaining. Um, so I've been really enjoying that. I've been trying to find some of the new ones out to the collection. And it's been a really interesting question about which ones are worth owning and which ones are worth passing on. Like, there's a new wave of figures that's basically focused on uh, the Season 7 Clone Wars characters plus Cad Bane for some reason. But the characters are a new Ahsoka figure, a Cad Bane figure, a... Uh, there's like the 
a couple different Mandalorians, like two different Mandalorians and then clone troopers. So it's a whole lot of like the same body suits and whatnot, just repainted, it looks like to me. So I don't know what quite the appeal of these new characters besides the paint job is. The Ahsoka figure looks fantastic, but I've already got the older one, so I'm not really sure that's worth it. So I'm working on the Rebels uh, characters now. Um, I picked up Ezra and Chopper. They have new versions of those out, so that's been a lot of fun. Uh, you should go into some of those cutthroat on, Facebook groups and say that you don't get the point of the repainted ones and see how that goes over. <laughs> There's actually a, a big... The big issue right now, the big debate and um, uh, schism, it seems, is the two groups of people in these group in in these Facebook groups. The one group are the uh, collectors, the purists, who need one of everything, mm-hmm. and the other group are the hoarders and scalpers who buy all of a figure. So, for example, this new wave of figures came out, I think, exclusively to Walmart, and po- people were posting th- the um, their their hauls basically, and these guys getting like. 12 Ahsokas and four Cad Banes and 17 clone troopers. And other people are lamenting the fact that they're driving from store to store to store and they can't find anything left on the shelves. And so there's this big problem of like, why are we encouraging the scalpers who buy a figure for $20 and then resell it online for $75? Is that not a legitimate aspect of collecting? How do both of these communities live in concert with one another? Do we kick out the hoarders? Do we shame them? It's really like a psychological nightmare that's kind of train wreckish where you don't want to watch because people's feelings are getting hurt, but you just can't look away. (laughs) I love it. It's been <laughs> you found um, your real niche there, buddy. Uh, it's 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 deep down in there. I had no idea it existed, but man, is it great! <laughs> so, uh, what's kind of the uh, what's the what's kind of the deciding factor for you when when it comes down to like what you're going to buy? Is it a feel thing? Are you looking for something specific? I try to make sure that the ones I'm after are a character that means something. Like, if somebody says, why do you have this on your shelf? I want to be able to kind of explain what it means. So I I like having some of the characters that are probably second and third tier characters. Like, I have a really fun General Grievous figure that he's one of my favorite villains. He does absolutely nothing for Revenge of the Sith, but he's so much fun. Um, So I really wanted to make sure I had that. Um, I've been looking for a good chopper because he's maniacal, murderous droid, and again, so much fun. So maybe there's a there's a pattern there. Um, but I have <laughs> I have uh, like Leia in her Bespin escape figure because the Cloud City sequence is probably the best twenty minutes of Star Wars film out of all eleven films. I have most of the Rogue One cast because of how much I enjoyed those and because they were five bucks a pop. Um, trying to think so really it's the characters that mean something i am by no means a a a perfectionist a completionist i don't don't need to have everything because there's eighteen thousand different kinds of stormtroopers there's purge troopers and mud troopers and there's different kinds of snow troopers and scout it's it just gets too much and i don't want to have 17 guys who all look the same but for their paint jobs i like getting the more interesting characters I still don't have a Luke. I'm not sure what the best Luke to get is. There's Old Man Luke from Octo, which is really cool. There's a new one 
in where all three of the main cast from the classic trilogy, their um, Endor adventure gear, Han, Luke, and Leia, all in like their green poncho-y outfits, and those are really sharp. Those might be uh, the ones to get there, but that's kind of what I'm going for is the characters that mean something rather than everybody. Yeah, that's kind of what I do with my like with my like, Funkos. Really? Yeah. I, I the Funko thing eludes me. I don't really get the appeal of those guys at all. Do you have like an explanation of what it is that like why is that such an appealing world to dig into? Uh, just or because it? I I mean it's because I like like cute fun little things like that uh, kind of cartoonish. Uh, little looking things, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, you know, that's that's part of the appeal of the Someone animated like the shows art, for art me. Design that kind of, yeah, that kind of that, that kind of pop arty kind of uh, you know, uh, a Saturday morning cartoon kind of design. And I was trying when uh, up up through up through Solo, I was like, I'm gonna get one of you know all the major characters. Um, and I have not, mm-hmm. I have not successfully completed that for any of the movies yet. Um, so I kind of just gone to. <laughs> well, it's it's I have a lot, so it, it's come to the point where I'm like I'm gonna get the ones that actually really matter to me first, like what you were saying. Um, and then yeah. I want to go back and fill in. Like I still need, um, oh, I still need a Canaan. Uh, is one of the ones that really means something to me that I don't have yet in Sabine. But, you know, I face those same things of, like, do you get it on a scalper or do you hope you get lucky one day on Amazon and they're having a sale? Because those things can get get quite pricey. I mean, um, especially once they start making them, you know? I was looking at, uh, just to kind of put it into perspective, that, like, it's happening everywhere. Uh, my stepmom is loves Motley Crue, so I was going to get her a set of the Motley Crue uh, Funko Pop figures for her office. And they're $35 a pop. And if you buy the f- the set of them oh altogether, you're looking at anything from 250 to $700 because they don't make them anymore. What? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it's kind of come to the point where it's like, I'm going to grab what I can and, and, you know, uh, obviously any new Ahsoka that comes out, I'm getting that like pre-ordered. But as far as anything else goes, um, you know, I'm kind of, I kind of have the same philosophy that you do. Yeah, that's kind of, it's been interesting to kind of really drill down on that because when you're staring at a wall full of them, there's a shop too, um, on our, on our summer vacations, there's a shop at the boardwalk that has a, a massive wall of them that he's been, you know, kind of acquiring over the months and years and, and he's got them priced, you know, again, these are things that retail like MSRP between like 20 and $25 for the average figure, but the harder to find ones can definitely climb close to or above a hundred dollars. There's, um... I don't know. I don't know that I can t- say exactly what the like. What's the holy grail of the black series figures? And again, I'm looking at the six inch figures in the boxes. I'm not looking at the. There's a secondary line of black series figures, which are just figures in like the card backs, more like the Kenner action figures we all kind of grew up with as kids. That's not really the game I'm in. I, I, I like the the bigger ones that they're more detailed, more articulated, and they, they're just a lot prettier to look at. Honestly. Um, there's like, uh, I think there was a San Diego comic con of Thrawn that came out that goes from between one and $200. Cause it's in a pretty little box and it comes, I think it comes within a Salamari, which would be neat to have, 
but I'm not going to spend 200 bucks on that. That's just... Uh... Lindsay, where do you come down on this? Because I know you uh, were collecting the Funko Pops at one time. So, yeah, I was doing the whole collection thing, and I still am. But I'm lucky enough that everyone kind of knows that I collect the Pop Funkos. And it's so expensive if you're buying uh-huh. every single one on your own. But it's kind of just everyone's like go-to gift for me now. So I actually stopped buying things pre-order or as soon as they came out. And I'll kind of just like clean up because my coworkers are absolutely amazing and I love them to death. And when we were in the office, they would be like, oh, hey, I was in Target and I saw this and I thought of you. And they would give me like a Mandalorian one or, you know, my mom or my aunts would give me some for Christmas or a birthday. And that's like the, the easiest way to collect things for cheap. So I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful to have good people in my life who see nerdy things. And they're just like, Lindsay would like that. Cause I would like that. And I do, but mm. instead of doubling up on things, I'm kind of just like, yeah, let me see, uh, see when I need to clean up every now and then and what I need to get. She just waits it out. So- I do. <laughs> I do. I feel like such a brat for saying it, but I do. Hey, you know what? If you, yourself. Get you got it for friends. <laughs> <laughs> so what for each of you is kind of like the uh, the pipe dream collectible? Like you're not willing to spend the money on it, but if you had it, you would just be over the top. Oh, oh I don't man. think it's any necessarily one thing, but I always love looking at like the gentle giant stuff. But I know that if I start, and I ha- I have a couple that I've gotten just from different conventions kind of on sale throughout the years, but I know if I start in with the Gentle Giant and pre-ordering those busts and pre-ordering those oh, scaled man. statues, it's going to get so expensive so fast. Drew, what about you? Oh, um, boy, that's tough. That's that's not quite that's that's not the mentality I roll with. I'm much more of a what can I get for the disposable income I have at the <laughs> rather than what do I what do I want to chase? Like the mm. helmets are really cool. I'd love to have like the high quality grade helmets, but or like the FX sabers. I'd like to get one of, you know, all of them. Um I don't know. But really, the, the thing that I'd like to have the most is I want to get some of the some really good posters for the films and have them framed. Like, oh, for some nice. reason, the overseas markets always get better art. I'd love to have like the Japanese series of the classic trilogy because it's just done so differently than what we get for American theaters. American theaters always get the same kind of like you know headshots of the cast in this weird diamond pattern on the front and some random explosion or something in the back. But when you start looking at like European markets and Asian markets, their, their art direction is so different. And it's just, yeah. they're more interested in the artistic value more than just, hey, look, here's 17 people in this film together. So that might be the direction, you know, if I was going to have a million dollars to spend on cool Star Wars stuff, that's the stuff I would probably track down first. That's I a have a... One. I have a deck of cards that's like each card is a different uh, Star Wars movie poster. It's pretty cool because you just like. Oh, really? Yeah. Like I, I've 
I've played with them a couple times, but really it's just fun just to like flip through them because they'll like the, they have like the suits will, or not the suits, but like all the Kings will have the same like kind of thing. And the queen, like it goes across like that. So uh, it's pretty cool to like see them all side by side. Of course it's, you know, the size of a playing card, but um, you could do something where you like collage that up. That would be pretty cool. But uh, for me, it would be the uh, uh, the samurai versions of the figures, um, like the samurai Darth Vader and samurai. Uh, Those to me are just like they're so cool, but they're so expensive uh, to just like sit on a shelf, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so one day I'm gonna figure out a way to justify that. But those are my my kind of pipe dream. Um, <laughs> you can't go wrong with more lightsabers, also. So there's that. Never. Have you guys seen the the posters that condense films? Like they take one frame and they take the dominant color from that frame and they make it a vertical strip and then they line a whole film together that way. Have you seen these yet? It it looks no. almost like a sound no. bar by the time you're done, but you get this visual display of like the dominant pictures. And there's one of Empire Strikes Back, and you can track. You know, the Battle of Hoth is this white and blue pattern that goes back and forth. You know, Dagobah is this dark green and black mixed with the asteroid fields. And then you get to Cloud City. It's just this amazing way of displaying these films. They take, you know, like I said, the one frame at a time and the dominant color from that frame. And they just make it in this amazing pattern. I'll see if I could find it and maybe share that in the group. Yeah, I want to see that. Oh, that's another one that would be great. Yeah, hop over no to our idea Facebook how to group. find it. <laughs> Yeah, what do you? It's one of those things you're like, what do I even Google search for that? One color stretched really long. Movie frame dominant. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Google's gonna be like, look, not even I know what you're talking about. You just don't. Come on, man. (laughs) You just don't. (laughs) It's just a red stop sign that goes no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like not even the uh, search did not get any results. It's just like. A guy just comes on. He's like, really, bro? Yeah, like, just stop, man. Just stop. <laughs> what are you going? Yeah. All right. I love it. I love it. Well, jump over to our Facebook group, and I'm sure Drew will, uh, you know, in all his spare time, will find that for us and post it <laughs> and, and everything. I'll have made something up. Yeah. I mean, that's really all we do. And with that in mind, uh, let's get into uh, our main topic. We are going to be talking about uh, Mandalore and Mandalorian history today with the release of, uh, at the time of this recording, uh, the release of Mandalorian Season 2, Episode 1. This morning, we thought we'd give a little bit of a background on uh, Mandalore and its history as far as the canon goes and uh, where it could go from here. So after the break, we will come back and warning ahead of time, if you have not watched uh, Chapter 9, The Marshal, uh, which is the first episode of Season 2 of The Mandalorian, we will have spoilers in here. Uh, so it won't be heavy spoilers, but we're going to No, we use... don't know that yet. Well, fair enough, but uh, <laughs> but we will. I we'll, promise you it will. <laughs> I stand corrected then. We will be talking spoilers. So we're going to take a quick break and, and figure out how many spoilers we're going to talk, and then we will come right back. You wanted to speak with me? I've got something to show you. What's this about? A lightsaber? Not just any lightsaber. It can't be. 
so you recognize it. That I do. It is the Dark Saber, a symbol for the leader of House Vizsla, and later the group known as Death Watch. I didn't know Mandalorians developed a type of lightsaber. We didn't. This was one of a kind. Legend tells that it was created over a thousand years ago by Tar Vizsla, the first Mandalorian ever inducted into the Jedi Order. After his passing, the Jedi kept the saber in their temple. That was until members of House Vizsla snuck in and liberated it. They used the saber to unify the people and strike down those who would oppose them. One time, they ruled all of Mandalore wielding this blade. We are back, and it is time to uh, dig into uh, Mandalore and Mandalore's history, uh, and and more particularly Mandalorians, because uh, you know we, there's there's some questions as far as Mandalorians go, because it to an extent it feels like the Mandalorian is kind of redefining uh, what a Mandalorian is uh, that necess- we didn't necessarily get from other aspects of canon. Uh, I think we kind of before season one of the Mandalorian, we kind of had an idea of what a Mandalorian was. And then we get all this new information without a lot of history, uh, which is, you know, slowly being doled out through the, through the series. And so we're going to try to put context to everything and just kind of figure out what we know about their history and and possibly make some predictions about their future. So I kind of want y'all's initial impressions after Mandalorian season one, or, or kind of as it was going on and we're getting all this new information about Mandalore, did you feel like there was a disconnect between kind of the history we had and and the new history that we were getting? No, not necessarily new, but definitely added on to because once you open it up to, you know, it's not a race, it's a creed that just makes it infinite possibilities, you know? So when you accept that, you don't have to rewrite anything. You don't have to rewrite the history of the race of Mandalore and the people of Mandalore. But now you add the religion to it. And yeah, that's something completely, completely different. So I see it more as an addition than I do a replacement. Okay. Okay. Drew, what about you? Where do you come down on that? Interesting. I am not real finalized in it because I do have a lot of questions on how these things connect. And I feel like there might be a gap of information and that's kind of where the disconnect occurs because Clone Wars did a lot of reinventing of the Mandalorian ideal and kind of what had been established. I guess when you throw out legends, you, you, you do solve a lot of problems, which is fine. Um, because a lot of the books towards the end of the legend series dealt with the you know the language of the mandalorian people and their history and whatnot really established where those ideas came from and there was never that i can remember any kind of like pacifistic faction that um that we see in the clone wars so that really kind of started the ability to kind of change your mind and go in a new direction and kind of come up with different ideas. So you could say in one, on one hand that season one of the Mandalorian really does kind of expand on that opportunity to create new areas of fiction, which is fine because we don't really want it tied down where it can never change, but I think it just has to be a natural and reasonable flow of change. And right now I feel like we're missing the gap between 
the Clone Wars and Rebels information where it really did feel like you had to be from the Mandalore system, whether it was one of the planets or whatever, in order to be part of the culture. But now we see that others can be brought into the culture uh, uh, separate and apart from where they came from. And I feel like that's new information. And that is a pretty big shift for a culture who prides itself on where they came from to begin with. Now to accept other people in it who they don't know where they came from all the time. Like, what did those the warriors know about Din Djarin when they pulled him out of uh, out of a bunker hole when the battle droids were attacking whatever planet they were on? Like, they didn't know anything about him other than he needed saving. And that's a I don't really know that part- good point. That's and that's kind of what I can't tell if it's a brilliant storytelling decision to open that up or if it's really damaging to it overall. And the ultimate answer is it doesn't really matter because for the context of season one of The Mandalorian, it's wonderful. It tells us about his character more than it does tell us about the other things spinning around him because honestly, the things spinning around him don't matter. This is a story about one man and his change, you know, his arc as he goes from, you know, emotionless, pitiless killer for hire to someone who has found something worth protecting. And that's yeah, but Drew, that's, occur, uh, is, that's like, such a good connection, though, to what we ahead. saw, you know, at the time of recording just this morning, you know, see, uh, season two, episode one, the whole thing centers around <sighs> him finding this man, in, you know, and here's where we're going to get into the spoilers, but he finds this man in the Mandalorian armor and his immediate reaction is, take that off, you're not worthy, you're not one of us, when he was just lucky that right. he was found as a child, where this man, once we get into the episode, he really is carrying out the values that a foundling would have. You know, he has his people, his clan, and he's doing anything he can to protect them. He just so happens to be using the armor to do it. His only drawback is that he started this as a grown adult, not as a child. He didn't necessarily have the armor as a child right. and quote unquote earn it when in reality it's almost, you know, he he's probably one of the people who yeah, really that, does deserve it. He said he didn't earn the armor the way that DeJaron had to earn it because he had to go through the trial of, you know, working for the client, you know, Werner Herzog's character from season one. He earned his best car. He brought it to the armorer. She fashioned it into something specifically for him. She bestowed the crest on his shoulder of the mud horn. So he went, so DeJaron goes through the trials and tribulations to go and every single step and he makes it all the way to full-fledged adoption into the family and, and has the recognition and the, you know, kind of the respect and trust of the rest of the clan. The guy who finds Fett's armor from in the Jawa Sandcrawler simply is using it for its um, 100% practical, pragmatic use. It's good defensive armor. And with that, he can then live out the values that Jaren has discovered through his adoption process. Mm-hmm. But with mm-hmm. what, what when, when Din is looking at it, he's saying... You got to the same point as me, but without going through the same difficulties as I am. That's a, a pretty selfish um, reaction, but it's completely human, too. Um, this let, Let's be clear. This first episode of season two is phenomenal. Start to finish. This is, this is, it just got better every single minute that it went on. No, 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 no. No, no. no. Oh, I will bridge. No. 
Mandalore throughout its history has really been like it struggles with its own identity. I feel like um, you have first of all you have you know the houses and clans and and it's not clear which is which and and what really that means. But even from the that beginning of what we get, um, you know actually like canonically see we see Satine and death watch you know at odds and then when we get to the rebels era or excuse me when we get to the mall era we see you know are they going to allow an outsider to be their leader we see a lot of this corruption uh we see people switching sides then you get to rebels and then and you have sabine and is she really a mandalorian anymore uh and you bring in bo katan back in and you know what it means to take on the mantle of the leader and so it's always there's always this struggle about what really is a mandalorian you know um are the people who join the empire legitimate mandalorians and so that's an interesting struggle that i think has really been going on you know really throughout their history because if we go back to the pre-clone wars era and the history that we have there it kind of all starts with the war with the jedi uh kanan talks about this in uh trials of the dark saber he says the jedi won the war with mandalore um and and they had fought for generations with with these people and at the same time you have the dark saber which is created by the first mandalorian jedi so we don't know a lot of details about that, but we do know that there's something there where, to me anyways, the way I understand that, you know, the Darksaber is kind of a symbolism of, you know, the the warrior of the Mandalorians and the heroism and the uh, integrity that the Jedi stood for and how do those come together? How are they at odds with each other? Which is kind of, you know, something we get throughout the prequels and and i honestly think it could be something they they bring into um the high republic more like maybe that's a place we get more of that uh mandalorian history but i mean they've been at war with each other with others for for a long time and at the end of the day like what are you fighting wars for you know uh at least in fictional stories it's for identity you know, a, a large war is a metaphor for the, the seeking of identity. And that's kind of what Mandalorians are doing. They're all trying to be one, you know, as, as emphasized by their, you know, kind of uniformed armor. But at the same time, they're all trying to be their own self, which is something that Din has to to struggle with and figure out what that means. Well, there, there are two big questions that I have. One of them is less serious than the other one. The more serious question it has to do with Django Fett and his impact on Mandalorian culture at large. Because I wonder the effect of having an entire galactic clone army specifically designed in Mandalorian fashion down to the helmets and you know, kind of that signature T visor. What does that do? I feel like if I'm a Mandalorian and I see an army overnight up here basically because there's no way they don't keep track of this thing you know they have their fingers on the pulse of armed combat across the galaxy i would be sure this looks like cheap imitation to me um and i and i wonder about what that does to their morale and their importance like what do we do we know does it matter to them do you think or are are they so confident in in their self-identity that they don't care about the clones who are basically trying to rip them off um, I, I would say 
maybe a little bit of both. I would say maybe they tell themselves that they don't really care. But if you look at what's going on in that era, you know, you have, that's kind of the Satine versus Death Watch era, where you have, you know, are we going to be pacifists? Are we going to be warriors? And then you have, you know, all this corruption going on. Um, you know, Prime Minister Almec, you know, basically funding the the black market uh, to keep keep Mandalore afloat and jumping sides and it's it's a messy time so I think maybe there is again that questioning of identity when you start to see mm-hmm. the clones and then even when the clones have to come in and help save you you know it's like what it again to, to me and this is what episode one of Mandalorian um, got me thinking about is like what does it mean to be a Mandalorian I think that's kind of what we're you know delving into because um you in clone wars you kind of you have the concordian moon which is like the centerpiece um as far as we see of the warrior culture of mandalore that's where death watch is is kind of at and then you have uh you know the actual actual mandalore and and the mandalorian cities that we spend time in but if you think about it those are under bubbles basically hiding from the destruction the wars that had destroyed the planet you know the, the mandalorians had been at war with each other for so long that uh it, it just it destroyed their planet so they have to live in these isolated bubbles in order to survive and so i wonder if there's any of that um you know kind of that consciousness the awareness that like if the clone war goes on for too long, you know, the same thing's going to happen to the galaxy. So I wonder, you know, kind of it mm. does it, I, I think it adds fuel to the fire of, you know, not necessarily are we warriors? Are we not? But like what's worth fighting for almost. It's kind of weird because we kind of have to retrain ourselves for how we're taking in this information because as Star Wars fans, as fantasy fans, whether it's books, other TV shows, movies, we are so used to and so accustomed to let's build these worlds and then we'll get into the actual fighting and the politics and the religious systems With Mandalore, they kind of do it in reverse. And they're like, hey, here are these wars. Here are these factions. Here are these religious sects. And now, by the way, once you kind of understand that all of this is going on, we're going to take a few steps backwards and start to build these worlds. So it's really hard to get a firm footing on where we're at in any given era with Mandalore because we are going backwards in the storytelling element like that. Yeah, I I would agree that there's definitely um, not, not the most clear, clearly defined line of storytelling threads, but I feel like they've done a, a decent job of at least making it interesting. The idea of a pacifist wing of the culture is really foreign. Um, that was yeah. I don't think that was ever an issue for them previous to the Clone Wars show. So that was kind of a it's at least interesting to have new ideas introduced and plugged into it, which that 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 can draw people in. And even if you spend, you know, 20 years reading all those, you know, the Legends books and getting really familiar with that stuff, then you have something new to be interested in. But it can also have the opposite effect of, of turning people off. But 
one of the, the the other question that I have is the whole helmet thing. You know, DeJaron makes very clear in season one that um, he's not willing to take his helmet off and have anybody see his face. You know, that's that's a pretty uh, important character development portion for him, especially in the final episode of that season and our dearly departed IG-11. Um, do you think that's personal to him? Or do you think that's part of the culture at large? And if so, there had to have been a change in the line somewhere because we have seen plenty of Mandalorians without their helmets on um, in shows past. Where do you think that comes from? Is that something more that they developed just for the Mandalorian show? Or is there got, something to tie it to? I got the impression that in universe, there is going to be something more to tie it to just because, you know, the episode where we meet Cara Dune, it seems like other people are pretty familiar with the thought that a Mandalorian is never going to remove his helmet. And it doesn't seem to catch a lot of people off guard when he refuses to eat in front of them and he refuses to take his helmet off, blah, blah, blah. So that, I think, is going to be explained as to why they don't do that and why it's commonplace that people know that. In terms of other Mandalorians having taken their helmet off, what I would kind of like to see is for there to be a reason in the annihilation of Mandalore and the reason why they are all in hiding now and for that to be some kind of connection with here's why we don't take our helmets off. Yeah. Maybe it's in remembrance of I, something. Maybe it's a tactical reason, whatever it is. But I think there could easily be a connection there. Yeah, I think that there's something to that with kind of like the mystique around the culture. Because if if season one, we take the information that they give us at face value, which is fine. You know, DeJaron's culvert is in hiding. So they're creating the more air of mystery they can create around it keeps them safe, right? Because it creates fear that may or may not be actually justified, and that's okay. And so maybe there's a thing like when they because they don't reveal who they are, it, it it's they're less human to people. They're less mm, human, mm. probably not good in a world a galaxy full of aliens, but. They take away that humanity, that sentient personality, yeah. and they're more fearsome. It's why, you know, Vader wears a mask, Kylo Ren wears a mask, all the stormtroopers wear helmets. You know, even when the clone troopers had helmets, they took them all off. They were all the same guy. Like that does something psychologically to somebody on the opposite side of a of a negotiation table. So I wonder if it's a self preservation tactic to say, you know, you, there might be some of us scattered around the galaxy, but you don't know if you've run into me before or not because I don't. I could be the same person under this helmet, or I could have just gotten a new set of armor, which we've seen them do too. I think the crate dragon is kind of, in a way, a metaphor for that. You have that unpierceable kind of skin, almost like an unpierceable armor, like the Beskar, and they have to find a way to literally like get inside the the crate to defeat it, um, and. At the same time, you have somebody wearing Boba Fett's armor who's not Boba Fett, and you have possibly Boba Fett without his armor. There's something there about the armor, the identity, battling with it, what it means um, that I think they're setting up. And, you know, um, the, the... So we can kind of transition into, like, going into the Clone Wars era through this, because... The, the armor means a lot to Death Watch, which is very, you know, is the faction that is um, going up 
head-to-head with Satine, who's wanting to uh, transition Mandalore into a pacifist society. And they talk about the... Uh, Previsla talks about the generations that have worn the armor and what it means and everything like that. And letting the culture go is kind of held together, uh, or the culture itself is kind of manifested in that armor. And Drew, you talked about, uh, you know, tradition earlier and Satine ironically, like straight up says to, to Padme, um, when Padme comes to visit, uh, to help with the corruption, she says, we are a people of tradition while at the same time she's changing their traditions, you know? And so it's, it's kind of a fluid situation because we even see Satine, she, she shows herself to be a warrior at certain points, um, you know, throughout the Clone Wars. She's able to defend herself. She's very similar to Padme. Like, she's not going to seek out the aggressive negotiations, but if you start shooting first, she's going to defend herself. Um, so there's an interesting dynamic there of when is it okay to be a warrior and when do we need to be standing back, which is a very Star Wars idea to be dealing with. I mean, we deal with it in Last Jedi. We deal with it in Return of the Jedi. Um, And so, especially having this culture that literally has, for all intents and purposes, tried to destroy itself for generations, um, that question, I feel like, looms pretty heavily over them now, post-Return of the Jedi, because there are so few of them and they are so spread apart. So you guys think it's definitely Boba Fett at the end of that season one or episode one, One hundred percent. Oh yeah, okay. for sure. Good, 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 good. I see people yeah, trying to think that it's Rex, that. and it's like, nah, bro. <laughs> That's nah. my man. That's Boba Fett right there. There's I a love that part so much. <laughs> one other moment I want to um, touch on in the Clone Wars era, um, and again, this is another quote from Satine. Uh, that I think ties in perfectly to the Mandalorian. She says, if we lose our young, Mandalore will indeed be lost. Ooh. Well, that's topical. Right? <laughs> so, again, that that kind of brings in the uh, the idea of foundlings, you know? The foundlings becoming those young, uh, even though they're not... The race Mandalorians, you know, they are the ones who are huh. going to, for all intents and purposes, save Mandalore. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting when you think about the fact that Death Watch, who is who is going up against a teen, are the ones who save Din, who's essentially the young that's going to help Mandalore not be lost by bringing in another foundling that's going to help Mandalore. <sighs> That's fascinating to to kind of put those pieces together because in in a society that uh, hmm how do we put this gently that adopts others into it in order to perpetuate its own creed and essentially religion I mean now you have a cult that's what this this is doing it's not necessarily kidnapping these people but we only have two examples so far of foundlings that that I can think of off the top of my head, but that's kind of an interesting way of connecting those two things where the young must continue on the tradition or whatever the quote you read. I would, I would not necessarily say cult. Uh, if 
we get to see that they have the choice of walking away. You know, that's something about the Jedi is uh, they had the choice to walk away. You know, um, we have the Lost 20. We have even even Qui-Gon at times questions if he should be a part of the Order. Anakin at one point in the comics is all but ready to leave the Order. So they have that freedom to go away, which makes it, to me anyways, that makes it more of a, uh, the Jedi more of a religion. Whereas if if we do see that like, you don't, once you're in, once you're a Mandalorian, you don't have a choice. You can't, you know, once you accept the creed, there's no turning back. You basically are, you're in it or you're dead, then it becomes yeah. a cult. And I don't know if we necessarily have the the context to define it in that way, um, but I do think that, that it's a possibility that that's something that they could bring into it if we wanted to kind of have Din having more of a struggle with his own personal identity, not just his identity as a Mandalorian. Yeah, it definitely is something like... I don't know if we have too many on-screen examples, but the whole culture definitely strikes me as one that if someone were to abandon that way, then I would think that the rest of the culture sees that as a threat, especially in, given the time frame of the Mandalorian show where they're in hiding. They, they cannot really risk somebody else exposing them to other factions who might want them dead. Now, the, the Jaren's group exposed themselves willingly, but they all paid the price for it, too, where they all get wiped out. There's the shot in the last episode of season one where all of their helmets are piled together in the middle of the room. I mean, I think that's what they would, they would be afraid of if someone were to um, turn their back on the culture and leave. Then they would have done that for a reason, and then they would fear retribution, I think. Couldn't that also be why they kind of target, we'll say, the less fortunate people of the galaxy you know they are going after those orphans they're going after the the kids sure, who sure. are cut are from that war-torn nature so when you have a jedi yeah you can bring him up as part of the order and he's going to go out into different worlds and experience things and create their own connections um his or her own connections Whereas you take a little kid who is an orphan, doesn't know anything, doesn't know any better. The odds of them leaving that group are so Mm -hmm. minimal because they do see it as this group saved me. I don't know what I would do without them. And I'm so lucky to be part of this. Like that's legit the first order. The the first order was going. We know from the Phasma novel. We know from Cardinal in particular that they were going to less fortunate kids. They were taking advantage of their need for identity, their need for uh, safety and security. Whereas the Jedi were taking children based on abilities and talents. It didn't matter where they came from because that was going to be washed away. Whereas I think the first order uses the the harsh past of the kids to their advantage to really yeah bring them in exploiting that that need yeah Whereas like the jedi were, were were less interested in that because you look at count dooku who comes from a line of royalty and he he is even at a certain point reclaims that the ability to go like like think about that if the first order had done something like or even the mandalorians had done something like that where they took in a child who came from a royal family and then that person wanted to reclaim their position in the, in the monarchy or whatever 
I don't see that going well for anybody. I mean, you think about uh, Kylo Ren on Starkiller Base. He sees Finn and he's just yelling traitor at him. Like that's the kind of response I would expect a Mandalorian sect to have. So. I, the more we talk about it, the more cultish I'm leaning towards. Now, that, I, hmm, is it safe to say that not all cults are bad? I'm not sure that's a judgment I'm willing yes. to make where people can hear it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's definitely safe. So I mean, this, look that's at... That's kind of fascinating. I, I 100% lean towards <laughs> it's example. a cult. You know, if, if the gate of heaven. That cult never once did oh, any boy. harm to anyone in society, only to the actual cult members because they were secluded for so long. But it's not like you can look at the Gate of Heaven cult and say, oh, my God, that was terrible. I can't believe the things that they did up until the mass suicide. Um, but that wasn't great. <laughs> sure. But it's yeah, not like they let's, ever let's did clear. any harm to society. <laughs> But yeah, well, don't recommend. <laughs> Try I, to avoid. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, Lindsay, you watched Waco, Drew. I don't know if you've seen it, the limited series on Netflix, but that, I mean, that cult was not really doing anybody any harm. Like they, they didn't necessarily yeah. ha- have like uh, the best practices. You know, uh, the leader was definitely only interested in looking out for himself. And I wouldn't say that the Mandalorians are that way, but with everything that went down in Waco, it wasn't, it was at the feet of the police. It wasn't, you know, their fault. They weren't inciting the riot, the fighting and Mm. stuff and violence. Whereas, um, I, I think to, to bring it back to Mandalore, the, if there is a cult in Mandalore, if there is an aspect of Mandalorians that are a cult, I would say it's the, the Maldalorians, the ones that instantaneously, begin to follow Maul after um, he defeats Pre Vizsla in, in single combat. You know, um, they have these opposing ideas in that instance of someone who holds the Darksaber and wins it in single combat is the leader of Mandalore, and at the same time, no one outside of Mandalore has ever ruled Mandalore. Bo-Katan tells us that. So those things are at odd with odds with each other in this moment. And they decide instead of following another Mandalorian and the traditions of Mandalore, they follow Maul who is only using it for his, he's using Mandalore in his own self interest and has no interest in actually doing anything of value for them, helping them. To me, that's like the leader of a cult. If we're going to say that Mandalore is a cult. That to me still seems like more mm. of a, like a militant group than a cult because I think a cult really does follow the leader because they so strongly believe yeah. in that charisma. Whereas with Maul, they understand this is the means to an end. It's not that they are so enthralled by him as a person, as a as a being. It's just the means to an end. I don't know. I think I think Son of Dathomir shows us otherwise. I think it shows they're pretty pretty squarely in his court. Uh, well, I don't know. They they. I think that at least from the beginning, when it happens, it's more of a legalistic, um, dogmatic approach, like to the rules of the game. And Maul comes in and really takes advantage of that. He kind of usurps their dedication to the rules of that you know trial by combat kind of thing. And is able to 
swiftly take over that way. Now, that certainly opened up probably opportunities for those among the Mandalorians who were more power hungry and wanted somebody like that to yeah. to fall in line, like because it got them what they wanted. It got them position, it got them power, and it got them you know more bodies to cut up and kill. Like that's what they're after. You know, it's 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 like a. Hmm. There are some dangerous parallels to current political positions. I think that 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 are starting to appear here. Where, hmm. but that's kind of what I'm seeing in that example. Like maybe it turns cultish when those they, especially when they start adorning their helmets with horns and the image of their leader. That yeah. I think is definitely more in Brandon's favor here because now they're idolizing the person rather than the position and and the method by which that position is attained. And they're willing to, you know, forgo the truth and and a truth that they know to be true in favor of their own self interest. Um, when when uh, Satine or excuse me, when Pre Vizsla is killed, Almec blames it on Satine with Mandalorian standing right there next to him who know it wasn't Satine that killed him, but they want this end of restoring the Mandalorian culture, of the warrior aspect of the Mandalorian culture, and they're willing to do whatever it takes uh, to do that. You know, uh, every means will justify the ends. And... Maybe Maul starts out as a means to that end that, because he is a that's warrior. How people but die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's that's the thing. Like we look at Mandalorians and everybody. I mean, everybody likes Mandalorians. Everybody thinks Mandalorians are, at least look cool, but their history is pretty messed up. Like they're not model, uh, you know, role <laughs> models. Even in the way that, like, like I would say Din, after season one of The Mandalorian, is a good role model. You know, he learns a lesson. He's living the real practices of Mandalore. And and what we learn about, you know, being, having honor and integrity and the foundlings and everything. The Mandalorians we see before that don't do that. Like, Death Watch talks about honor, right. but doesn't have any. They are willing to kill and betray regardless of who it is as long as they get their way um and you know we pre Vizsla, for example says at one point he says it's time to restore the traditions of mandalore as he is crapping on the traditions of mandalore um it's it's a it's a really weird cycle uh that that mm. keeps continuing to happen and i'm thinking again going back to my theory of the crate dragon being representative of having to you know, confront um, Din having to confront his own identity as a Mandalorian in their history. Uh, I think all of that's going to come up because I was actually in in doing some research today on uh, dragons. Found that Carl Jung uh, said that dragons were fighting a dragon was uh, essentially a metaphor for fighting your subconscious, right? And that so in that instance, that's what Din is doing, and and his subconscious is this battle between this lost foundling um which he was you know manifested now in baby yoda versus this mandalorian he's supposed to be becoming and he's supposed to be representing and where do those two things meet that's kind of been the struggle of mandalore all along there's always this duality going on you have maul versus bo-katan you have satine versus death watch uh you have um the 
going to the Rebels era, you have um, Fen Rao, you know, starting off helping uh, the Empire and then going over to help the Rebels. And then you have the uh, the Stormtrooper Mandalorians uh, that follow Gar Saxon. And so we have those versus uh, uh, Sabine and Bo-Katan's faction. Like, there's always these two <laughs> opposing ideas in Mandalorian culture um, that literally cannot exist with each other if they're going to define it all as one culture. You know, Mandalore is not like... like America, we have like American culture, but there's a lot of different cultures within, you know, Mandalore is they're They're saying this is one. Everybody is this way, but you have these two warring factions always going at each other. I think mm. this is why I'm so curious about what really happened in the purge, because I yes. think we kind of assume it was the empire, but the more we're talking about it, the less likely that is. The more likely it is that it's these civil war type internal factions kind of coming out on top and maybe purging each other. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that necessarily Mm. because uh, Moff Gideon in that Mm. moment in episode eight when he's basically calling everybody out, when he you know, Karasynthia Dune of Alderaan and uh, Din Djarin and everything like that. He talks about the Night of a Thousand Tears. And to me, that evokes, you know, um, massacres that have happened in history, not inflicted, you know, not one culture inflicting it on themselves. You know, um, I think maybe That's they were. True. They were weak yeah, enough because they had been fighting yeah. for so long. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's it's a lot of things leading into yeah, exactly. it. Yeah, that's yeah. So that, yeah, uh, that's how I think we're supposed to interpret there because it's kind of a combination between, um, you know, the the trail of tears and the night of broken glass were both orchestrated by these military governments that kind of had come in and taken over and uh, taken advantage of these other people groups. So I definitely think it's empire coming in, just smashing the hammer down on these groups because they were probably the most fearsome um, army that they could have encountered. You know, once they, once Palpatine disposes of the Jedi and has control of, of the grand army of the Republic, who's left to fight? Probably yeah. just the Mandalorians. That's probably the only group that could probably rise up and challenge them in a military superiority complex challenge. And just to, I mean, kind of that's, wrap up our... I <laughs> no, I mean, it, it makes sense and, and it, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna do everything you can and we've seen Palpatine do everything he can to, to weaken any opposition, you know? Um, and why would yeah, you, absolutely. why would you not do that? And it, I imagine it happens somewhere near after the Siege of Mandalore when they're already, you know, you've already got, you know, we see in, uh, I think it's the third episode of Siege of Mandalore, could be the fourth one, um, that that uh, see that moment where the, the clone troopers are walking the uh, basically imprisoned um, refugee Mandalorians down, and it's, it, it's very reminiscent of uh, Nazi Germany and marching people into internment camps and um, mm. situations like that that have happened. So I think it happened near the Siege of Mandalore. That's my own personal um, headcanon going off of that. And so they were already weak because that's what they do. They weaken each other. You know, it, it's essentially not that I think yeah. 
Yeah. I don't think I don't think Mandalorians are evil like the Sith. You know, I don't think they're supposed to be this absolute evil. But I mean, the rule of two exists because the Sith could not, you know, exist in great numbers because they were weakening each other by teaming up and defeating uh, a more significant foe. You know, you that's why Bane made it the rule of two because you would have a bunch of weak apprentices just overwhelm a master to take the position. And it would weaken the the Sith culture. And so it seems like that's what happened with Mandalore. And maybe now they're trying to really establish a code and really follow a code and and a moral compass to strengthen that. Because there's a moment um, before Maul and uh, Pre Vizsla face off in the throne room when Pre Vizsla talks about uh, being the... him and and Death Watch being the descendants of the true warrior faith, all Mandalorians once knew. Which yeah. I found really interesting that they said faith and not bloodline. Faith, yeah. You know, um, so maybe that now mm-hmm. they're getting back to that the roots of that faith that we haven't seen yet, and trying to find the balance of that duality, which is is something that's very Star Warsy. Also, <laughs> yeah, thinking about Mandalorian faith would make the Mandalore Jedi war so much more interesting because it would make it more of a crusade than anything else. And that's a story I would like to say. Is this a game for you? No game, just outsmarting my opponent. Care to take a shot? lesson. The Jedi won the war with Mandalore. These tricks will amount to something. Maybe save you from time to time, but they won't keep you alive in the long run. But going to like the Empire and um, what kind of happens there, again, you have Mandalorians who are looking out for their own personal self-interest and not their cultural self-interest um, because you do have like Fen Rao and the protectors of, of Concord Dawn who are basically working for the empire which when you first watch rebels without the context of knowing that there's this great purge that goes on you kind of you're like dude like what are you doing you know this is not what a mandalorian should be and and you just look at him as a bad guy um but in this most recent rewatch of rebels as i was watching that first episode knowing about the purge it, it almost made him more sympathetic because it's like He's just doing what he can to survive, you know, and uh, to, to make sure he mm. can perpetuate his culture. And so to me, Fen Rao becomes a much more um, engaging character later when he turns because he's doing it not just because he believes in Sabine as a person, but he believes in Sabine as the one who can bring back the Mandalorian culture uh, which is kind of manifest in her passing the dark saber to uh, to Bo-Katan. So there's a there's an interesting like do it's almost a, like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing, for lack of a better term, where we see some Mandalorians joining up with the Empire uh, because they're looking out for themselves. Uh, we see that later with Gar Saxon and his stormtrooper Mandalorians and stuff. Um, and then you have on the other side, you have Sabine and, and Bo-Katan and um, all of them who are s- somehow, at, you know, trying to maintain Mandalorian, uh, what a Mandalorian is and what it means to be a Mandalorian. 
but at the same time, no, they can't face the one thing that is standing in their way, which is the empire. Um, mm. It's kind of an interesting, interesting struggle because this is a time when they have to really figure out when to fight, you know, um, which is something that comes up in Rebels a lot is when do we fight yeah. and when do we, we sit back and when and, and how, wait. yeah. Yeah. The last person we know to have the Darksaber was Bo-Katan, right? Yes. yes. Moff Gideon? Do we know how Gideon gets that Darksaber? Are we to, to no, we don't. No, he no. He takes it by force? Or is there more to that story that we know yet? Well, okay, so there are rumors that Katie Sackhoff is in season two of The Mandalorian, and she, of course, is uh, Bo-Katan. She does the voice of Bo-Katan. She looks a l- pretty much uh, like Bo-Katan, is, is modeled after her uh, her features. So <laughs> I imagine that we're going to see Bo-Katan. Um, in, in what capacity, I don't know. But yeah, the last we see of the Darksaber is uh, the really powerful moment when Sabine hands it off to... Uh, Bo and then all the other uh, Mandalorian, I guess those would be the Mandalorian clans um, and houses. They kneel down in front of her, saying that they're going to follow her. So you you get this really nice moment at the end of Rebels. You know we've been talking about them being split and everything. You get this nice moment at the end of Rebels where they are all coming together, which is um, interesting to to consider. You have that moment, and then now we have these Mandalorians that are all spread out and uh the dark saber that is no longer in possession and you also have this is something that i think we need to keep in mind with whatever happens with gideon and bo-katan bo is very adamant that she is not the one to take the dark saber that she's already failed once as a leader when she um took the place as lord regent once uh mm. satine passed and so if he if gideon did take it by force if he uh want it in single combat or he not necessarily if he won it in a way that is not i guess mischievous like he didn't just like steal it um and he won it in a way where he actually defeated bo-katan that opens up a lot of questions about her as a leader of the mandalorians you know and and is she yeah. up to snuff if she, you know because she she would have failed twice uh, I don't necessarily want that to happen, but that's something I think we need to keep in mind. Yeah. Set, re- set very realistic expectations for her. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's talk about the Darksaber for a minute. Be- <laughs> because it is a, uh, it's a symbol for the leader of House Vizsla. Uh, it, it later becomes a, a symbol for Death Watch. And... Um, we get some history from about the Darksaber from Fen Rao in, uh, in Rebels. In, it was created originally by Tar Vizsla, who was the first Mandalorian in the Jedi Order. Uh, and at one time, it was a thing that ruled all of Mandalore uh, and all the Mandalorians. Now, Drew, you're more versed on the Legends canon. Um, I know the Mandalore... Um, was kind of the leader of the Mandalorians. Was it the dark saber or was it a helmet? Mm-hmm. What what there was a symbol that like the leader of the Mandalorian had to have. Going back to, I know it talks about it in the Revan novel. Gosh. 
let me uh, let me pull this way back out of my brain and see if I can remember any of that stuff I read 15, 20 years ago. Um, I think there was armor that was passed down from Mandalore to Mandalore because Mandalore was just you know the leader of, and I think he just assumed the title by killing the previous one or inheriting it through the family. I think, or maybe I they believe can be you're right, my friend. At some point, Boba Fett himself. Boba Fett himself becomes Mandalore, but he rejects that title, and that's when he starts turning. He turned to bounty hunting in the meantime, but then he reassumes it uh, in the uh, which series is that? It's not. It's the one after New Jedi Order. It's the Legacy of the Force ones, perhaps. In the it, this, it's the series where Jason Solo turns to the dark side. Spoiler alert uh, for Book Four, um, and. <laughs> If anyone wants to read those books, which I do encourage and doesn't want to know what happens, skip 20 seconds into the future uh, in this. Jaina Solo, his twin sister, tracks down Boba Fett, has her train him in his Jedi hunting ways to go and kill her own twin brother. Big spoilers. Okay, if you're back with us now. Yeah, we warned everybody at the beginning of this. Um, (laughs) I don't remember. I think the helmet is part of it because... Fett inherited his helmet in the in the Legends novels from someone else, but this was also right around the time Attack of the Clones came out. So a lot of that started in the books. The film comes out. It turns out he's an unaltered clone of Jango Fett. That throws things into a little upheaval, and then the books try and sort that out. Originally, Boba Fett was born on a planet called Conquer Dawn, and that gets hmm. reused in the Clone Wars series, as you guys have have noted. Um, but I feel like Fett's helmet, the green helmet, belonged to somebody else. I don't know if it's hundreds of years before we see him uh, on the scene at the, the rise of the Empire. But there was nothing... There, I can't think of an artifact that would have been passed from, from leader to leader the way the Darksaber uh, is... Uh, we're, we're, we're supposed to believe that has been passed down from for, for hundreds of years, I believe. Well, it's interesting because... Um Sabine talks about the the armor of Mandalorians and how they it's been passed down for for generations, kind of like you were talking about. And um, at yeah. one point, Ezra kind of is like, "What is with you, Mandalorians, in your armor?" And she she gives him this speech about it being their history, uh, you know, that that it's been worn by generations before her. Which again, going to that, does the Mandalorian conflict with that? we see the armorer melting down Beskar, you know? So um, she's doing it to create new armor, uh, but what, is that, what does that history mean to them well, and how do they understand that, uh, that process, you know? Um, do they know they where... If you think it? about it from like... Yeah. What? Well, one of the one of the things in the in the in the in the legend stories in, within the culture was especially within the context of of marriage, where they would trade pieces of armor and they would build sets of armor for their children out of the armor of their parents. So, like you know, the breastplate would be passed down from father to son or something like that. Dejeron has no family from which to inherit such armor. That's why it's so piecemeal at the beginning of the show in that first episode of season one. It's basically just scraps that I feel like other people have thrown away. But when he comes into the Beskar, which is the ancestral armor, it's what all of that stuff is made from. It's like the, the one metal that can turn away a lightsaber blade. 
you know, the armorer bestows it upon him. I think it's her bestowing upon him the right to create a new line of his own through which he can pass down his uh, own uh, armor that way. So she she also gives him, or she uh, quests him in quotation marks because I'm not sure that's a verb you can use. Um, you know, quests him to find the family of the foundling. I think the implication there is if he cannot. Okay. Come on. I I just said, you know, sets a task at Outlook for him to go and complete. Um, The idea there is to pass that armor that line. I I don't make the rules. I just relate what I see on TV <laughs> to what I know. It's I'll stop sometimes it's though. just not exciting. <laughs> no, but you get the idea of like of the family lineage. She is authorizing his creation of a new lineage through the creation of his armor. Um, so that that's why the idea of a singular artifact that is demonstrative of leadership and authority. I mean, imagine if we pass down, in, in here in the United States, if we pass down a personal copy of the Constitution from president to president upon their inauguration, or perhaps some sort of book of secrets that might be located somewhere in the Library of Congress that Nicolas Cage tries to steal. <laughs> um, that the equivalent tries to. Look for is, he steals it, dude. Hold on. Let's get this right. Let's get this... <laughs> he, he successfully steals... The Book of Secrets. Well, Continue. Oh, okay, sure. I, that presumes I remember what happens in that film. <laughs> also, it's on Disney Plus. Disney Plus. Yeah, I guess. We, sidebar: I did make we did make our kids watch the first one of those book, the National Treasure movies, <laughs> and they found it just as ridiculous as the rest of us on Planet Earth did when he stands in the National Archives and goes, "I'm going to steal the, the Declaration of Independence." My my then eight year old goes, No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's funny. It's pretty brilliant. It's pretty brilliant. Um yeah. That's all the, I have to say about that. <laughs> I, I like that idea of kind of being able to create your your own clan and your own family. Um I think it meshes I think it meshes well with the idea of the armor because in a situation like you have with Sabine where you have the Ren clan uh, you know who's able to pass it down across generations you you get that that uh, history you know you're taking that history with you whereas when you come in with no history you know the the Beskar gets melted down not to destroy the history of the past but to meld it all together into being a part of what this new thing is for you you know and right. and is for Mandalore right. um which which I think is a, is a is a powerful message and I think Mandalore the Mandalorians need somebody like Din Djarin uh and and I think that they've been searching for that, and I think Bo-Katan even talks about um, talks about it when discussing Sabine. She says she reminds me of the best of who we are and could inspire us to be better than we have been of late. I will not allow her efforts to be wasted, um, mm. which is really interesting considering 
where we see the Mandalorians and where we know Sabine ends up, um, which is not on Mandalore at the end of Rebels mm-hmm. and the possibility of her coming back. Um, and could we get this again? Could we get warring factions of Mandalorians who are behind Din and possibly Sabine and uh, who are behind Boba Fett? Because Boba is is more of a manifestation, I think, of who the the Mandalorians want to see themselves as, whereas Din is is who they should become. Um, again, man, that duality, just the the constant fighting and tension that's going on just within the culture is so i mean it's relevant obviously like right now in our own world (laughs) but it yeah it's like every time they think they solve a problem they've really created a thousand new ones it's Um, like (laughs) whack-a-mole it's it's like whack-a-mole i love it that's exactly what it's like So, boy, I can't wait to see what they do with Boba Fett. Um, yeah, I was going to ask that to make him a part of the show. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? All right, think about this for a moment. Like, he is part of the family with no family himself. Like, he is probably the only pure Mandalorian, but he has no connection to it. But like, he was but that's the thing. By it's so good what is he doing as far as we know yeah like he's not a mandalorian that's the thing like he wears the armor but but almec says jango fett is a he stole the armor he is a fraud and we disown him like he's not a mandalorian and granted almec not the most reliable of characters yeah History but, being rewritten by the, the the winners of of war is what that is <laughs> like. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but it's all we have to I'm go. I'm so on. excited to see what happens next. Yeah, I mean, and well, I I think that's going to be the struggle. I think I think Boba Fett is going to claim himself a Mandalorian, and that that's going to, for lack of a better term, it's going to offend Din. That's and that's a, where I, the I struggle don't is. Want the show, yeah. I don't want the show to turn into the Boba Fett show. No, but I, it's called The Mandalorian. So, like, who is The Mandalorian? What does that mean? I don't... I think, obviously, it's going to turn out... It's a Star Wars. It's going to turn out well. It's going to be Din. But I think that's the struggle that you're going to have if we're looking at these... We're going to find these different groups of Mandalorians... Are they going to side with Boba? Are they going to side with Din? Mm-hmm. Could be, even if it's not like actually like behind them, like they were behind Maul, but ideologically, to where it it's the viewer more so seeing the two camps is the struggle that I foresee happening, and that helps it make sense for you know Ahsoka coming in, Sabine coming in, because you have these characters who had more firsthand experiences with the Mandalorians of the past that Din didn't necessarily have. Right. He doesn't have that history. He doesn't have that knowledge. But Fett right. could have been like an observer to all of those things. You know, we don't see him participating in the culture. We see him kind of turning his back on the culture almost, you know, as soon as he's on his own. He follows in the footsteps of his father rather than in, in the footsteps of his I guess you would call it extended family at that point. So what does a man like that do next after 
you know, we see him fall into the Sarlacc pit in Return of the Jedi. We we kind of infer that the crate dragon that they're fighting in uh, season two, episode one is is probably the one that killed the Sarlacc he was in because of the way they talk about, you know, it moved into this cave after killing the Sarlacc, which is kind of funny. And then from that, we can we can kind of presume that Fett escapes. But now without his armor, who is this man? What is he doing? Um, he's a clone. He looks like a clone soldier. So it, does he want to fall in line with, you know, kind of the military complex? Does he want to strike out on his own? Does he want to reinvent himself? Is he tracking down his armor? Is he watching the marshal kind of play the role? Like, I was really surprised. But we have they such did, limited did time. Jodo. Oh, we have all the time in the world. We have such limited time. You're telling me that you... TV show. <laughs> No, no, we we got to keep the focus on the child and Din being the Mandalorian protecting the child and him trying to find, don't forget this all started, this whole episode started with him trying to find the faction. Boba Fett clearly left the Mandalorians. He was more interested in the bounty hunting than he was Mandalore. And we were saying earlier that when the Mandalorians treat these traitors... As what they are, you know, we we compared it to Kylo Ren looking at Finn shouting traitor. You don't think that the Mandalorians would think Boba Fett the same way. I don't know. I think that's the fascinating thing because Boba Fett strikes me as the kind of guy who would try and take over the faction from the outside and say, no, y'all report to me now because I can kill all of you and have no hesitation to do so. I think kind of like what Brandon said is... um, to kind of build upon his expectation is like, I can absolutely see a violent takeover by which those man, the rest of Mandalorians scattered across the galaxy have to choose who they are going to follow. Because at this point you've got three options. You've got Din Djarin kind of as the exemplary um, knight in shine, literally knight in shining armor who espouses, you know, a, a more virtuous ethic than Mandalorian culture has been used to. As option one, you've got Boba Fett as a return to the might makes right mentality, potentially. And three, you have Moff Gideon, who is still in possession of the Darksaber, and according to legalistic tradition, would be the technical ruler. So does he have the authority to exert influence over existing Mandalorians, and would they respond to that? And when if they don't, clearly, according to the end of season one, if you don't respond to that authority, you end up as a pile of helmets. Like, this is a fascinating kind of a a series of options. And if the show is about uh, the decisions that people have to make, who they're going to follow, the man who wants to be a father, the man who wants to be a murderer, and the man who already is, that is a fascinating set of of very difficult choices, and I cannot wait to see where they go with this. Do we want the show to be the Boba Fett show? Maybe not. But no matter what happens in the end, one Mandalorian will probably rise above all the others and take control. So the end of this season two is going to be one of these guys leading an army of Mandalorians, calling it now. And I am so... And we may not even know. Bo-Katan may return. If Katie Sackhoff does return, she'll always be Starbuck to me. But she's a viable option. If Sabine plays a role, she's an option. 
Like there are, this is a critical junction where a leaderless group of people, disparate people, finally have not one but multiple choices of who they can choose to be, and they get to pick what side of the war they want to be on. I can't. This is fascinating. This is right up my alley. Well, and it's fantastic. There's there's a moment in season one. Uh, in one, it's in the episode uh, where um, Tar, not Tar Vizsla, the Vizsla that uh, John Favreau plays and uh, Din get into that little fight in the armorer's uh, den. Yeah, and Pav, she talks. Yes, thank you. She she talks about those who choose the way of the Mandalore. Like, it's a choice yeah. that you make. And and right. we don't know who the Mandalore is. Is the Mandalore a for, just to to kind of put it into context? Is the Mandalore Jesus, and you're having to decide to follow Jesus, or is the uh. is the Mandalore a, a priest? You know, and that it evolves over. It can you know it can change from one priest to another at depending on you know where you're at in, in the timeline. Oh, you, you, you see what I'm saying? Like, is it this static figure? Is it, is it a person? Yeah. Right. Or is it a title? Is it a proper instead? noun or yeah. a common noun? Yes. <laughs> that, that Basically. is the, you would think the English teacher would get that, but how it's written. <laughs> that's the thing. We don't know how it's written. You know, it says the like Mandalore. Going back to, do you remember when the last Jedi title was released? And everyone was like, "Well, is yes. Jedi plural or is it single?" <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, it was plural in the international marketing campaign. This <laughs> let's, is true. Let's, that is it established. But then again, when you you know, everyone, that's a funny point now that you when you mention it that because. Everyone's asking on Twitter. Ryan Johnson is like, "Who's the last Jedi?" And he posts like a screen cap of the crawl text from The Force Awakens, where it says, "Luke Skywalker, comma space, the last Jedi, comma space." It's like, oh, yeah, and still oh, no okay, one believed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone's like, "No, we don't believe you, the man who wrote and directed." Anyway, we don't have time for that. So, By the way, you should all still check out RemakeTheLastJedi.com because it's still hilarious. I, if you need to laugh, please. Please, it's great. You pat them on the head and say, "Oh, it's so cute." You'll you'll thank me in the morning. Will we? <laughs> Will we? Um, final final kind of thing I wanted to touch on is it the- because we could we could go on for, with Mandalorians forever. The creed, not a race, idea that uh, is presented in in season one. Do we think that that's uh, going to be something that comes up again? Do we think that that is going to be something uh, that could possibly be at the middle of this uh, proposed Mandalorian war that it, it sounds like we think could be coming? Or is this something that is just going to be, here's a fact and move on? No, I think it's going to play a pretty intricate role. It just seemed to be such a big theme, season one. I don't see how you could just abandon it. I would love for it to come back and be a sticking point because I think that's a fascinating um, choice that people get to make because I can absolutely see a faction that is more progressive and accepting of moving forward that says, yes, as a creed, we can continue to grow and spread um, and uh, find new adopters 
and welcome them into the family. But I can also see a strict bloodline, you know, Merovingian king style of, no, we follow this particular people and that is it. And, and again, that dichotomy, that conflict is like Brandon, like you said, is very Star Wars in nature. It's like, well, you know, when Obi-Wan talks about the force, you know, compo- you know, passes through all living things and it's open to everyone. But then you've got the Empire, which is, you know, <laughs> white dudes, British accents and mustaches. That's all the Empire is like. It's very clear cut and separations. And I think this is a similar kind of conflict that all of these characters are going to have to struggle with at some point. And I think the the idea of a creed, not a race, and, and something more than bloodlines, Lindsay, to to kind of uh, go to your arena, Rise of Skywalker. I mean, that's that's the end of Rise mm-hmm. of Skywalker. Is is uh, is Ray claiming that Skywalker name? She's not claiming that she is a a Ooh. Skywalker by birth, but she's claiming the creed of a Skywalker. You know, and and to live that life, which ties in with uh, what we see in the legends of Luke Skywalker, where all these different stories are being told. And the kind of the theme throughout the whole book is we are all Luke Skywalker, you know, everyone can be a hero. So in a way, um, you know, that's kind of a theme that's already being played around with in star Wars. I don't necessarily think that uh, John Favreau and J.J. Abrams were like, hey, let's do this together. Um, I think it's just something that's inherently in Star Wars um, and that it's kind of coming to the forefront now just because our culture, our culture now is, I think, a little bit more um, accepting of the different mixes of of family types and um, relationship types and everything like that to where we no longer want to have to be defined by our bloodlines that we want to be able to accept the good of those, uh, forego the bad, and, and make our names, our cultures, our air quotes people better by taking the good from um, people that we're influenced by and using that to evolve ourselves. And so, again, if we get this kind of whatever this battle is that's going to be happening, and just for context, I'm just going to say Boba versus Din. If we get this Boba versus Din, we have Boba who is is the old way, who is literally the blood of uh, you know Jango Fett, the mm. Mandalorian, versus Din, oh, so who is a foundling, who is not only not only is he a foundling, but for our, for all intents and purposes, every Mandalorian has been human unto the child, mm. you know, and so he's bringing in. A literal alien to the culture. I mean, it's it's an interesting. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, again, they have helmets on, so there's a possibility that that there's an Aqualish under there. Who knows? But everybody that we've seen has (laughs) been. I'm pretty sure there's no Togrudas. The headtails would kind of be a dead giveaway. Although, why wouldn't it? Could you actually thinking about that? Uh, well, now I'm thinking, could you, like, do one... You know how, like, uh, guys with, like, long dreads on football teams will, like, fold them up in their helmet? Could you do that with the head, too? I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe Ahsoka is actually a Mandalorian, we'll and that's the big the reveal. this season. <laughs> we don't know. It's a game changer, guys. But I gotta say, after episode one... Um, <laughs> I know, Lindsay, you felt it was like kind of like a filler episode, and I know I've heard some people online say that, but I've got to say oh. um, I'm very, oh. very excited. And um, 
I've started a new series on uh, the website on ClassicSabers.net where I'm going to be looking at the meaning and symbolism uh, that I notice in each episode of The Mandalorian. So if you want to delve a little bit more into that, that is available uh, right now over at ClassicSabers.net. And, uh, of course, you can find all of our links there and uh, to our Facebook group and, and everything else. And, of course, our nonprofit, which is working to get books into schools and classrooms across the country. Uh, and we also have our link to our Patreon there that helps to fund that. So, um, guys, any closing thoughts before we say goodbye on Mandalorian, The Mandalorian, and Mandalore? So you started off then. That's it. Just the Soka lives. But no, I think we're we're gonna get more backstory than I think we realize. I know everyone is so hyper focused now on the child and Boba Fett and everything to come, but I really do think that between this and the High Republic, we're gonna get a lot of history of Mandalore to fill in the blanks. Mm. I think it's a culture that could use um, it, it would be helpful to have a singular tome that tells us the whole history front and back fills in all the gaps that's never going to happen that's okay um, what we get from the show has been great so far and I think only uh, good things are coming our way this is I think this first episode to season two is a fantastic start and I am very excited for next Friday and uh, that'll be this Friday by the time that you're listening to this. And, of course, we will be back to discuss more Mandalorian throughout the season. And you can, of course, always find us over on Twitter at Clashing Sabers or in our Facebook group. Basically, we're everywhere. Just search Clashing Sabers. Drew is at the Drew Brett. And then uh, do you have anything else uh, going on, Drew? Are you writing anything, working on any ideas right now? Yeah. I'm working on something. I've, there, I have an idea I've been mulling around for the past three months. It's been very difficult to find time to work on it, but it has to do with um, pod racing, the NFL, and justice for Rats Tyrell. So hopefully you'll see that before the end of the calendar year, and it's going to be, well, I'll enjoy it, and I hope you do too. <laughs> Oh, man. It, it, okay. I, I really don't know how to respond to that. Okay. <laughs> Lindsay, uh, you it, are it, at the late... It'll make sense one day. <laughs> one day. If 2020 can just continue to bring the surprises. Uh, one day more. Lindsay, you are at the Lady yes. of Lore, and tell, uh, tell everybody what you've got going on. Uh, I'm pretty much just sitting here anxiously awaiting to see what the hell Drew is doing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, I, um, writing wise, I've kind of been at a lull, hoping to pick that up pretty soon. But of course you guys can find me here and over on don't burn the sacred text as well. So until next time, the real creed of the Mandalorian is not, this is the way. It's Batch 8. Hi ho. Hi ho. Watch. Episode 2. Episode 10, chapter 10. That's what they're going to they're going to say. It's going to be getting real confusing. Do we go episodes? Do we go chapters? How are we I doing know. this? I don't know. We've got to we got to figure this out. 
Can somebody can somebody text Dave Filoni real quick for me? And just ask him. We'll just figure it out. Just pull up my. Hey, hey, Dave. It's true. How's it going, man? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, Brandon has a question. Brandon, do you want to say your question again? I uh um uh no I I don't have a question, Mr. Filoni, sir. Um, hi, you're great. Oh, he he hung up. He hung up. Sorry. I'll uh I'll see. Maybe he drove through a tunnel. Hang on. Oh. Do we think anyone's still listening? I'm not even listening. <laughs> you were like, oh. he hung up. I was like, I might hung up. Hang up. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> the podcast you just listened to and all other Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of ClashingSabers.net. All sounds and materials used from other creators is their stuff, and we just use different informational and educational purposes. Bottom line, we made it. It's ours. They made it. It's theirs. Seems simple, but if you're still confused, feel free to email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. We have no association with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of the other fine companies that make all this stuff we talk about. But, Kathleen Kennedy, if you need anything, let me know. I work for cheap. Now let's blow this thing and get out of here.